face. I like to end the show by saying every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you for listening. For more information on Let's Talk About Race, visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1 or check us out on Instagram at LTAR Show or www.letstalkrace.net. The following program has been produced by Grassroot News Northwest. listening to KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. In August 2019, the New York Times published an interactive project titled 1619. The multimedia project was directed by reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones and featured contributions by writers, poets, and photographers. The release of the 1619 project coincided with the 400th anniversary of what is said to be the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the Virginia colony. But was it? We'll be discussing that in part during today's show. Producers for the project pointed out that in order to understand white supremacy and systemic racism in the United States, you shouldn't simply begin at the founding of the country in 1776. They argue that you should go back as far as 1619 when a Portuguese ship carrying 20 enslaved people from West Africa arrived on the shores of what is known today as Port Comfort, Virginia. This, of course, drew criticism from some on the right wing who dismissed the project as an anti-American propaganda project. However, the Washington, D.C. building that white supremacist-in-chief Donald Trump occupies today was built by enslaved Africans. And today, close to a year after the release of the 1619 Project, a new and groundbreaking work compels us to look even further back beyond 1619 to truly understand white supremacy and systemic racism and the United States. And that new work is by historian Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, to give us some context, let us go now to a clip of 
uh, Gerald Horn uh, discussing this very idea um, in an earlier work of his. And then he poses the question about how black people are treated today. And yes, we are going to play that clip, that clip of George Floyd. Let's go to those clips now. We need a new story. We need a new narrative that explains the apparent anomalies and contradictions of how was it that the supposedly grand, grand revolt of 1776 led to so much misery for the Native Americans in the first place, not to mention the Africans. How was it that you had the so-called so grand revolution of 1776 and then the emerging nation, the United States, oust Britain from the leadership of the international African slave trade as Britain becomes the cop on the beat seeking to detain U.S. slave traders, how is it that the supposedly grand revolution led to U.S. slave traders being the major reason why you have so many people of African descent in Brazil, which has the largest black population outside of the shores of Nigeria? How did that happen? How do you explain that apparent anomaly? How do you explain what's happening to black people in North America today? How do you explain a Department of Education report recently released that suggested that black preschoolers are suspended at a rate spectacularly higher than other preschools? A letter writer to the New York Times a few weeks ago wrote a letter, I think he was jesting, suggesting that the way the United States is going eventually Black infants will be segregated on the premise that they cry louder <laughs> other infants. He thought he was being sarcastic, but the path that this country is on now, we can't rule anything now. God. Ah. Yeah, oh. Oh, man. Ah. I thought he people out here. Got feet on the ground. Difficult, you know, but you know, it is an example of the continuation of the long war from the time Africans were taken uh, from our homeland 
and brought to the Americas as enslaved people, a long war that continues uh, today. And the world got to see part of what that means uh, watching the murder of George Floyd. But today, Dr. Gerald Horn, longtime guest and special friend of Sojourner Truth, has yet another brand new book. This entitled, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. The Apocalypse makes reference to the time period in which African and indigenous people were enslaved, tortured, and killed by the millions. In his book, Dr. Horn revisits the history of the 1500s, which is a century that is often overlooked when it comes to colonial history. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Stunning news overnight that President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have tested positive for the coronavirus. Trump's positive test came hours after the White House announced that senior aide Hope Hicks came down with the virus after traveling with the president several times this week. Trump is 74 years old and obese, putting him at higher risk of serious complications from a virus that has now killed more than 205,000 people nationwide. A spokesman said Vice President Mike Pence tested negative for the virus this morning and remains in good health. Trump, who has spent much of the year downplaying the threat of a virus that has killed more than 205,000 people in this country, said he and the First Lady were quarantining. The White House physician said Trump is expected to continue carrying out his duties without disruption while recovering. Democratic rival Joe Biden tweeted that he and his wife Jill, quote, send our thoughts to President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump for a swift recovery. He added, we will continue to pray for the health and safety of the president and his family. Biden was to be tested, too. He stood about 10 feet from Trump during this week's 90-minute presidential debate, during which Trump frequently shouted, which would expel more virus droplets or airborne particles. In an interview on Democracy Now!, epidemiologist and former Michigan gubernatorial candidate Abul Sayad said the failure of Trump and those around him to wear facial coverings and the constant high-level meetings put a large and tight network of people at risk. People like Amy Coney Barrett jumping from Senate office to Senate office trying to get confirmed. People like Mark Meadows, whose job it is, is to liaise with uh, with Congress all the time on legislation that's pending, um, and all of the super spreader events that you just talked about, all of the travel uh, that uh, that Donald Trump and, and, and his entourage have been taking uh, over the course of this campaign, all the while, right, trying to make a point about this pandemic being less than what we all know it is, a very serious public health tragedy. That the, the problem with science, right, is that if you try and mess with science, science always wins. The first report that aide Hope Hicks had developed COVID-19 came in a report from Bloomberg News, not from the White House. Unconfirmed reports said White House officials were hoping to keep Hicks' diagnosis secret. Even after Trump knew that Hicks had developed symptoms of the coronavirus, 
but before the news was public, he traveled yesterday to New Jersey for a fundraiser where he didn't wear a mask and exposed other people at that event. White House Press Secretary Kelly McEnany briefed the press yesterday while Hicks was presumed to have the virus, but offered no public word on the case close to the president. Since the coronavirus emerged earlier this year, Trump has refused to abide by basic public health guidelines, including those issued by his own administration, such as wearing facial coverings in public and practicing social distancing. Instead, he has continued to hold campaign rallies that draw thousands of often maskless supporters packed close together. He told reporters in May, quote, I feel no vulnerability whatsoever. Several members of Trump's cabinet were undergoing testing for COVID-19 today. Besides Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the fourth in line to the presidency, tested negative. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin also tested negative, while Attorney General Bill Barr was to undergo a test this morning. President Trump's diagnosis upends his presidential campaign plans with Election Day just about a month away. Trump was to travel to Florida and Wisconsin today and tomorrow. Those events have been wiped off his schedule as he quarantines at the White House. Scott Lucas is professor of American politics at the University of Birmingham. He spoke to Al Jazeera. It takes him off of the campaign trail, so he cannot have these large rallies that he was counting on to raise his profile. Technically, he cannot campaign from inside the White House. Now, whether they try to break that, we'll see. He'll do two things. One is he'll use White House appearances if he's physically able to do so, answering reporters' questions, and then your big one. Two weeks from now, he's due to meet Joe Biden in the second presidential debate. Will they set it up inside a White House studio where he goes ahead? Does he pull out? If he appears, does he finally wear a mask and actually acknowledge the threat of the virus? U.S. employers added 661,000 jobs in September, the third straight month of slower hiring, and the final jobs report before the presidential election. House Democrats narrowly approved a $2.2 trillion COVID-19 relief bill. The move came as top-level talks on a smaller, potentially bipartisan measure dragged on toward an uncertain finish. An Oakland federal judge has temporarily lifted a visa ban on a large number of work permits. The judge says President Trump likely acted outside the bounds of his authority. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our guest today, Dr. Gerald Horn, has a brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. During the 16th century, key events took place that set the stage for British settler colonialism and later white supremacy in the United States. Such important history uh, given the moment that we are in uh, right now to go back and look at what happened. And yes, uh, way before 1619, uh, we're going to learn a lot was going on in even also including black presence on the shores of what is now known as the United States. And in 1514, for example, enslaved Africans revolted in Puerto Rico in what has been described the first African uprising known to have taken place anywhere in the Indies. In the in the 1520s, the Spanish had already brought enslaved Africans from the Dominican Republic to what has become North Carolina, what 
and of course, um, the name was not then uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, Dr. Horn also tells the untold story of how resistance by liberated Africans and indigenous communities threatened the Spanish crown and propelled England to send settlers to Virginia in 1607. And of course, Dr. Horn is the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, including this latest book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, going uh, to you, I, I did go through the book, absolutely fascinated. I learned so much that I didn't know. So I'm hoping that our listeners uh, will be encouraged uh, to do the same. Uh, but you go way back, of course, and you talk about some of the global players at the time. You make a case that at, at one point, China was really uh, preeminent in terms of what back then could be seen as the global economy. But then a number of things happened uh, to shift it to uh, England. And you also talk about the, uh, the, the strength of the Ottoman Empire and its demise and the implications of that. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, about the, all of that in, in your book, but of course there are a range of the first settlements uh, since slavery, as I mentioned earlier, it seems to be one long war since we were taken from the shores of Africa, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, first of all, I think we need to establish that we study history so that we can get a better understanding of the present. I'm afraid to say that too often you have historians who are akin to doctors. When you go to visit them, they take a detailed medical history and then you ask the doctor, what is the treatment plan? What is the diagnosis? And the doctor replies, well, I'm just into history for history's sake. Uh, I don't basically have a treatment plan or a diagnosis. But what I'm trying to do here is explore history so that we can better understand the present. And one of the points I try to establish is not only that China, as you suggested, began to lag behind as the Western European powers led by Spain and Portugal in the first place, bumped into the Americas and began to loot and plunder the indigenous population and the resources of the Americas, which not only allowed it to go into a leading position worldwide, but also to withstand the stiff challenge from the Ottoman Turks, who were a Muslim power and were moving steadily westward. In fact, I make the case that one of the reasons why the Spanish and the Portuguese began to move steadily westward across the Atlantic in a sense, they were being chased by the Ottoman Turks, who were moving steadily westward towards them. In any case, another point that I make is that if you're trying to understand racism, you really have to understand religion. Uh, that is to say that all of these powers, that is to say the Ottoman Turks, the Spanish, the Portuguese, etc., they were powers that were dominated by religion. Muslims, Islam in the, in the case of the Ottoman Turks, Catholicism in the case of Portugal and Spain, but with the so-called Protestant breakaway from Christian, from uh, Catholicism in 1517, led by Martin Luther, you had this particular strength, a trench, uh, sweep like wildfire across Europe, particularly to London, which set off a sharp conflict between the Catholic powers and the Protestant powers. What happens is that London, as the scrappy underdog, is not able to follow the pattern of Spain which had a religious qualification for being a settler. 
That is to say, if you were an African and you professed to be Catholic, you could be a conquistador in the Americas. The English did not have that advantage since there were not enough Protestants to go around, so they moved from Protestantism or religion as a qualifier to pan-Europeanism, then to whiteness, then to white supremacy. And so what happens is that those they have been warring with, and particularly Irish Catholics, particularly the Jewish population, which had been expelled from England in 1291, these uh, otherwise dissonant forces were welcomed into the embrace of London when it started its settlements in the Americas, and this proved to be the winning ticket, I'm afraid to say. Indeed, when England is moving into what they call Virginia in 1607, the Spanish from their perch in St. Augustine, Florida, which they had established in 1565, with enslaved Africans, by the way, were unable to move northward to confront or oust the English because the Spanish were tied down fighting the Africans and the indigenous, oftentimes united, sometimes separately. And so one of the reasons we're speaking English and not Spanish here in North America, or not being here at all, has to do with the combativeness of these Africans and indigenous folks in Florida. I should also say that with regard to the racism that emerges effortlessly from the English settlement, it's important to point out that it has religious roots. If you look at what befell the Jewish population in England before they were expelled at the end of the 13th century, you'll find many of the tropes that were then employed against black people. The fact that there were stiff bars against miscegenation and intermarriage, the fact that they were libeled, suggesting that they had a particular odor, the fact that they were libeled, suggesting that they had tails. And so I think in order today to combat racism, you have to understand that in part, this is an irrational phenomenon. And as Du Bois discovered in the 20th century, it's not enough, I'm afraid to say, to just bring forward fact-based studies, although I'm all in favor of those. You really have to fight and struggle in a militant fashion to overcome racism and white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, very well said. And I mean, your work always uh, path-breaking, eye-opening. We have to lift up historians like uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. There really isn't anyone like him that I know of. There are some very fine historians of of color around, but you ask them and they'll tell you about uh, Dr. Gerald Horn really uh, leading the way. Dr. Gerald Horn's brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. I'm looking at it right now, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. But trust me, this is information that we all need to know. Young people who are, we're so proud of young people right now, out on the streets proclaiming uh, Black Lives Matter, multiracial group of young people, they need to know this history. It's not being taught in the schools. Dr. Horn, uh, just back back to you because you know people you always hear people saying well you know um, slavery was around way before um, the transatlantic slave trade and what we know as as chattel uh, slavery and uh, they refer to the Ottoman Empire and um, the, all the varieties of slavery that took place before. Uh, and I'd like you to talk a bit about that because, and also the various players, the various countries, um, because it wasn't.
than only England and Spain that were involved in the trade, what's known as the trade, and uh, the the various conflicts um, uh, between them, and how England in all of that uh, became ascendant, so to speak, in in the slave trade, turning uh, places like Liverpool that you describe in the book as a, a I think a, a one horse town into a, a major uh, wealthy uh, city in the UK. Dr. Gerald Horn. There were a number of powers involved in the slave trade. In fact, the Ottoman Turks, you could describe as an equal opportunity in slavery. Yes, they enslaved Africans, but they also enslaved Europeans, as the history of Albania and Serbia and Kosovo and Bosnia and what is now called North Macedonia and Bulgaria tends to suggest. The Spanish, of course, enslaved Africans and they enslaved indigenous but from the time they encountered the archipelago in the Pacific that they named the Philippines after King Felipe, King Philip of Spain, they began to enslave people they called Filipinos, dragging them across the Pacific to Mexico. However, you need to realize that the innovation, if you like, of London was this system of so-called racialized slavery, where initially the Africans, and England being a latecomer to this banquet of enslavement were left to focus and target Africa. The Africans initially were enslaved because they were said to need the beneficence of Christianity. In fact, as late as the 1850s, you had the slave owners in Texas who were arguing for a reopening of the African slave trade because they said it would bring Christianity to the Africans and therefore would be a benefit. However, the innovation, if you like, of England is moving from that to racialized slavery. That is to say, the Africans as inferior human beings as not being part of the human family, which then allows the Declaration of Independence of the United States in 1776 to blithely suggest that all men are created equal. Of course, in terms of men, let's set aside women for the time being, uh, the Africans were not considered to be part of that designation of humanity, and therefore it was justifiable to enslave them. And I'm afraid to say that even in 2020, we're still battling this same phenomenon, as that clip about George Floyd tends to suggest. It's no accident that uh, black people are more likely to be killed by the police, more likely to be imprisoned, more likely to be executed on, on death row. But I think part of the good news today is that since May 25th, 2020, I think we may be on the verge of a kind of turning point in this centuries-long struggle against white supremacy. It's not only embedded in the protests from the city of New York to Portland, Oregon, it's also reflected in the resolution introduced at the United Nations Human Rights Council by Ethiopia's Ethiopian-based African Union uh, calling for a commission of inquiry into systemic racism, their term, not mine, in the United States of America. And I also see it in terms of politics in the United States. The defeat of Elliot Engel, a man who carried much water for expansion of Israel by Jamal, Jamal Bowman in New York City, uh, who, of course, is much more to the left. The defeat of Congressman Lacey Clay in St. Louis by Cory Bush, a Black Lives Matter activist. So there are signs that we're beginning to turn the corner. But I don't see how we can turn the corner without a strong Pacifica, which, by the way, has listeners 
not only in Southern California, but all over the country and all over the world. The knowledge in that book, I mean, the, the people who are making that turning point right now, who are making uh, that um, this, this such important movement right now, they need the information in this book. People are wondering, what can happen in the United States? How can we heal? How can we resolve these issues? You will not know if we don't know all of the history, the dawning of the apocalypse, the roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century brand new book. Once again, I think that our movement may be at a turning point, not only as a result of these protests and the slogans that are being raised at these protests, which are quite far in advance of slogans that were raised in the 1960s when we had our late, latest outbursts of mass protests and mass energy, but it's also, as noted, these electoral victories, uh, which hopefully will culminate on the first Tuesday in November with the defeat of the open, the Oval Office, Agent Orange himself. But I don't see how that's possible unless you have this strong beacon of communication, that is to say Pacifica Radio, which, as noted, has an audience worldwide and from the Atlantic to the Pacific. But Dr. Horn, the, 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 the book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, published, by the way, just this month, um, uh, last month, uh, July 2020, riveting revision of the creation myth of settler colonialism and how the United States was formed. This is just critical. Dr. Horn argues that in order to understand the arrival of colonists from the British Isles in the early 17th century, one must first understand the long 16th century. That's from 1492 until the arrival of settlers in Virginia uh, in 1607. And Dr. Horn, what I'd like to do is to actually play a clip of uh, from um, uh, of, of you um, uh, earlier um, iteration of a very uh, similar uh, ideas that you just expand upon in this brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Let's go to that clip right now about the slave revolts, about Spanish, Florida, French, Quebec, and a model, a capitalist model uh, based on race and the development of whiteness. The African slave trade came with negative results from the point of view of the slave traders and the planters because it led to numerous slave revolts, liquidation plots when the Africans were plotting to totally liquidate and massacre all the European settlers. This was particularly taking place in Jamaica, in Antigua, and in Barbados. In some of those precincts and some of those islands, the Africans were outnumbering the Europeans, sometimes 20 to 1, creating favorable conditions for slave revolts and liquidation plots, causing many of the European settler class to make a great trek to the North American mainland in search of sanctuary, where the population figures were more favorable to their colonial project. This was taking place in the context of a religious cold war between the so-called Catholic powers, the Spanish and the French, the Spanish and Spanish Florida, the French in Quebec, Canada, 
And the Africans made a strategic decision to often unite with the Spanish, in particular, in Spanish Florida, and to a degree with the French in Quebec against the British settlers, who were, of course, the embodiment of Protestantism. Part of the, quote, success, unquote, of the colonial project here, the consequences of which we still need to grapple with, is that the settlers here expanded the base of their project by opting for a model based on whiteness. What I mean is, is that the Spanish colonizers, for example, oftentimes to be a Spanish colonizer, you had to be Catholic. The settlers here opted for a process whereby those who might have been English or Irish or Scots or Welsh on that side of the Atlantic, when they came here, somehow they became white, unquote. This obviously expanded the base for the colonial project because whiteness eventually was extend, extended and expanded to incorporate anyone who had roots from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ural Mountains in Russia. And that's the contemporary rough definition of, quote, whiteness or white Americans in the United States of America. This obviously expanded the base for the colonial project. Of course, the problem was, for many of us, is that whiteness was defined in opposition to those of us who were not allowed to enter the hollow halls of whiteness. People melanin-rich such as myself, for example. <laughs> this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a station break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Check us out on our website on SoTrueRadio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us on Facebook. And we're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. By the way, on Twitter and Instagram, you could find our handle at so True Radio. And today for our SoundCloud listeners, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Belgium. We need a new story. We need a new narrative that explains the apparent anomalies and contradictions of how was it that the supposedly grand, grand revolt of 1776 led to so much misery 
for the Native Americans in the first place, not to mention the Africans, how was it that you had the so-called so Grand Revolution of 1776, and then the emerging nation, the United States, ousted Britain from the leadership of the international African slave trade, as Britain becomes the cop on the beat seeking to detain U.S. slave traders, how is it that the supposedly grand revolution led to U.S. slave traders being the major reason why you have so many people of African descent in Brazil, which has the largest black population outside of the shores of Nigeria? How did that happen? How do you explain that apparent anomaly? How do you explain what's happening to black people in North America today? How do you explain a Department of Education report recently released that suggested that black preschoolers are suspended at a rate spectacularly higher than other preschools? A letter writer to the New York Times a few weeks ago wrote a letter, I think he was jesting, suggesting that the way the United States is going, eventually, Black infants will be segregated on the premise that they cry louder <laughs> other infants. He thought he was being sarcastic, but the path that this country is on now, we can't rule anything now. One of the many reasons you have so many people of African descent in Cuba today is because of the busy slave trading of US slave traders who were bringing Congolese sailing up the Congo River as early as the 1830s, even before King Leopold, and enchaining Africans and bringing them to Cuba by some reports as late as the 1870s. Cuba doesn't abolish slavery until the 1880s. Our Cuban friends, who have so many nationals, Cuban nationals of Congolese descent, will pay attention to this book and then link up with the reparations movement here on the mainland of North America and jointly sponsor a campaign, and if not legal cases, for reparations against the United States. You know the old story, the Olympian founding fathers led by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, John Adams and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, etc. Motivated by these lofty principles of liberty and freedom and democracy, fought this war against a tyrannical king in London, yeah. leading to the formation of this great Declaration of Independence and U.S. Constitution, which seemingly came from the, the brains of gods, and has been emulated all over the world ever since and inspired many generations, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we need a new story. We need a new narrative. Dr. Gerald Horn's uh, material today, his brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Who hasn't learned from Dr. Horn? I have learned so much listening to Dr. Horn, just sitting at his feet, just hearing everything he has to say, reading his books from Dr. Horn, from our weekly roundtables, and so much more, his talks uh, that he gives from his, his book, 
books. Let us lift him up. I think he's one of the greatest historians that we have. Uh, Dr. Horn, I'd like you to, to for you to dig in um, a little bit about this use of whiteness, because if you look back at uh, and 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 England and how they used it, as opposed to perhaps um, uh, Spanish or or even the French uh, did, and considering that in the UK the British, I mean, they were branding their own people, you know, during feudal times. They impoverished uh, Britain. They, they, then Cromwell did that whole ethnic cleansing of the Irish from from Ireland, but this concept of whiteness and the connection with the slave trade very convenient dig a little bit into that for us dr horn well as you suggested it allowed for a certain kind of reconciliation in the british isles those that had been warring particularly english protestants versus irish catholics were able to reconcile to a certain degree when they crossed the atlantic on the mutual altar that was whiteness the same holds true for the scots as well it's no accident that as the British Empire began to recede into history, you began to see a reemergence of these conflicts. For example, uh, I would venture the prediction that Scotland will secede from Great Britain sometime in the next few years because there is no longer colonial feast and plunder for them to gorge on. But ultimately, this also helped to lead to a certain kind of reconciliation in Europe itself. Because, of course, the benefits, quote-unquote, of whiteness extended to those who were warring in Europe. Uh, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, uh, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, etc. Once they crossed the Atlantic, they magically embraced this uh, identity politics of whiteness, a militarized identity politics itself, which allows for them to jointly uh, feast upon the land of Native Americans and the free labor of the Africans. And in some ways, that is the story of the United States of America. And I think that the failure to understand this basic concept leads to a misdiagnosis. For example, if you look at the fabled and vaunted Bill of Rights of the United States, guaranteeing so-called religious liberty under the First Amendment, well, in some ways, you cannot necessarily see that as a product of the enlightened minds and the enlightened brains of certain men who were defined as white, quote-unquote, which is the line put forward by too many historians in this country. But in many ways, it's once again an attempt to reconcile those who have been warring on religious grounds, Protestant versus Catholic in the first place, under a new sort of identity by saying that you can pursue your religious sectarianism as long as you jointly uh, collaborate in this other project of settler colonialism. And likewise, I think it's important to understand the Bill of Rights as a doctrine, as a body of law that did not include those of us who were not defined as white. For example, there was no Second Amendment right to bear arms on behalf of enslaved Africans, and certainly not the indigenous population, for if there had been believe me, as the U.S. president likes to say, slavery would have ended well before 1865 if the enslaved had had the right to bear arms. Right. And uh, Dr. Horn, uh, another thing that I, I honestly didn't know <laughs> um, about the arrival of uh, people of African descent in California 
uh, pretty early. I mean, tell us about um, Francis Drake. You know, recently his statue um, was torn down or was removed, okay? Um, and a lot of people, like, who is Francis Drake? Like, why, why would indigenous people or anybody be upset to have a statue of him? So tell us just a little bit about that, uh, Francis Drake, but also on, on California. Well, so Francis Drake was the Queen's pirate. He was a plunderer on behalf of London and Queen Elizabeth. He was a parasite upon parasites. That is to say that London gained immense, enormous wealth by virtue of the fact that Sir Francis Drake and his pirates oftentimes pillaged Spanish ships that were crossing the Atlantic and sailing via Cuba that had extracted immense mineral wealth from what is now Mexico and what is now Peru, and that wealth was then stolen from thieves and taken to London. And then Sir Francis Drake, in terms of his voyages and travels, actually made it to California in the 16th century. And of course, some claim that the beginnings of the what becomes the British Empire uh, comes when Sir Francis Drake plants the flag of London in what is now Northern California, or what it may have been Oregon. So California also is very important to the story that we tell. And Dr. Gerald Horn's brand new book, all of this is in his brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and he goes into great detail uh, about, uh, again, the long 16th century, 1492, um, to the arrival of settlers in Virginia. Um, he, in this prolonged century, Dr. Horn contends whiteness morphed into white supremacy and allowed England to co-opt not only religious minorities, but also various nationalities throughout Europe, thus forging a muscular block that was needed to confront um, indigenous and uh, African people who were in rebellion in retelling the blood thirsty story of the invasion of the Americas, Dr. Horn recounts how the fierce resistance by Africans and indigenous people weakened Spain and enabled London to dispatch settlers to Virginia in 1607, and the settlers laid the groundwork for the British Empire and its revolting spawn that became the United States of America. And I know so much that people really don't want to be divided from each other. People want to find their way to each other and to you know we have to understand what makes uh, a Charlottesville what makes a situation um, where um, George Floyd is is killed um, uh, Rashard Brooks um, Breonna Taylor where the police officers who killed her aren't even arrested I mean this has been a long war uh, people and Dr. Gerald Horn is the man that is telling us the detail of it I'd like to get some uh, final thoughts from you, but also if you could, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, Bartolome de las Casas, who um, wrote about the horrific horror, horror, murder, and torture of indigenous people. He was an eyewitness to those horrible scenes, but in your book, under the title Liquidation of um, the Indigenous, you also have some other information about Bartolome de las Casas, information that I also didn't know, something new I learned in your new book, Dr. Horn. 
Well, yes. In some ways, this expose of Las Casas, of the horrors visited upon the indigenous, in some ways opens the door for a focus on enslaving Africans. And in some ways, also, it feeds into London's propaganda. And I think that in order to understand, this is a sub-theme of this book, the kind of discrimination that folks who are, in some ways, the descendants of the Spanish Empire uh, are treated in North America today, you have to understand the so-called black legend that London crafted, which suggested that those who were Spanish and those who were Catholic those who spoke Spanish and those who were Catholic had a special kind of terror that they inflicted upon others, and that it would be better if these terrorist Spanish were to step aside for supposedly the more charitable English, which helps to explain why a good deal of Mexican territory was snatched in the 1840s, including California, and became U.S. territory entering the so-called Anglosphere. Also, in terms of the treatment plan and the diagnosis with regards to this long history, you have a lot of talk nowadays trying to explain voting patterns in the United States, why it is that as late as today, there's no guarantee, I'm afraid to say, that the 45th president will be defeated on November 3rd. The journalist Isabel Wilkerson has put forward in her new book, Cast, which is selling like hotcakes that you have to understand the United States not in terms of racism, but in terms of caste, like you have in India with Brahmins and untouchables, which is more, much more rigid and stratified, she would argue, than the uh, racist system that you have in the United States. There are others on the left who say that the explanation could be found in the reach, found in the reach of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. Of course, I argue that it's a question of, of class collaboration between poor and richer Europeans which was part of settler colonialism from day one and helped to dull class consciousness and helped to dull class consciousness even today, helping to explain the low rate of trade unionism in the United States and also why we cannot predict for sure that the oath and the Oval Office will be shown the door on November 3rd, 2020. Right. Well, Dr. Gerald Horn, we so appreciate you making yourself available for us this hour, giving of your time, your brand new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. It is a must read. It is a must read for each and every one of us. The African slave trade came with negative results from the point of view of the slave traders and the planters because it led to numerous slave revolts, liquidation plots when the Africans were plotting to totally liquidate and massacre all the European settlers. This was particularly taking place in Jamaica, in Antigua, and in Barbados. In some of those precincts in some of those islands, the Africans were outnumbering the Europeans, sometimes 20 to 1, creating favorable conditions for slave revolts and liquidation plots, causing many of the European settler class to make a great trek to the North American mainland in search of sanctuary, where the population figures were more favorable to their colonial project. This was taking place in the context of a religious cold war 
between the so-called Catholic powers, the Spanish and the French, the Spanish and Spanish Florida, the French in Quebec, Canada, and the Africans made a strategic decision to often unite with the Spanish, in particular, in Spanish Florida, and to a degree with the French in Quebec against the British settlers, who were, of course, the embodiment of Protestantism. Part of the, quote, success, unquote, of the colonial project here, the consequences of which we still need to grapple with, is that the settlers here expanded the base of their project by opting for a model based on whiteness. What I mean is, is that the Spanish colonizers, for example, oftentimes to be a Spanish colonizer, you had to be Catholic. The settlers here opted for a process whereby those who might have been English or Irish or Scots or Welsh on that side of the Atlantic, when they came here, somehow they became white, unquote. This obviously expanded the base for the colonial project because whiteness eventually was extend, extended and expanded to incorporate anyone who had roots from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ural Mountains in Russia. And that's the contemporary rough definition of, quote, whiteness or white Americans in the United States of America. This obviously expanded the base for the colonial project. Of course, the problem was, for many of us, is that whiteness was defined in opposition to those of us who were not allowed to enter the hollow halls of whiteness. People melanin rich, such as myself, for example. <laughs> there was a much more authentic effort to create a synthetic whiteness in North America uh, than it was in Southern Africa. In fact, at the end of the 19th century, there was a war between the Afrikaners and the British. And what's interesting is that you had Euro-Americans fighting on both sides. Uh, you had uh, some Euro-Americans who were pro-London, others who were pro-racism, <laughs> which should not come as a surprise. And of course, the Africans, generally speaking, did not support the Afrikaners, just like the Africans in North America did not support the settlers' revolt in North America at the end of the 18th century that led to the formation of the United States of America. And one of the many reasons why people of African descent have been treated so horribly and atrociously on these shores is that this so-called revolution that created this so-called republic was fundamentally at our expense. That is to say, to continue slavery and also to continue seizing the land of Native Americans. Uh, you might recall the Royal Proclamation of 1762-63 where London expressed displeasure at continuing to fund real estate speculator number one, George Washington, followed by the current real estate speculator in the Oval Office today, uh, in terms of George Washington and his comrades continually <laughs> waging war against Native Americans, taking their land, ousting them, liquidating them, uh, etc. And so rather than a seed, the settlers here kicked out the British, with the help of the French, by the way, and I hope I'm not digressing too much to suggest <laughs> that when France financed the rebels here, it basically bankrupted Paris, which then led to the French Revolution, 1789, and then the Haitian Revolution, <laughs> 1791 to, to 1804. In any case, 
the Afrikaners fundamentally lost their war with London at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. But alas, uh, London and the Afrikaners basically kissed and made up to the detriment of the Africans. And by 1910 or thereabouts, you had the formation of the so-called Union of South Africa, uh, which continues until the early 1960s when it becomes the Republic of South Africa. In any case, uh, Euro-Americans were essential to the propulsion of the Union of South Africa. Uh, that is to say, uh, migrants from North America crossing the Atlantic, uh, establishing a grub stake in Southern Africa. In fact, uh, as I point out in the book, the fundamentals of apartheid, and apartheid is a policy that doesn't come into existence in, until 1948, but obviously racism <laughs> comes into existence in South Africa in 1652, but apartheid represents a, a kind of uh, greatly backwards in terms of racism. It, it involves uh, racism on steroids, uh, neo-slavery. The blueprint for apartheid was basically formulated in Manhattan by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, for which they've subsequently apologized, of course, you know, trying to get on the right side of history, belatedly. And part of the, the stated purpose was to throw up a wall between poor Afrikaners and the black majority to try to prevent some sort of class-based alliance. And it basically worked for a while because there was affirmative action for poor Afrikaners, uh, that is to say, hiring them at state-controlled corporations at uh, bountiful wages, which helps to buy them off to a certain degree. We're out of time today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org. Follow us on Facebook, our handle on Twitter and Instagram, at sotrueradio. Thank Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.
listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. This is Takimba, the host of the Melting Pot Radio Show. During these crazy times of COVID and social distancing, KBOO Radio and its connection to community are more valuable than ever. It's important to hear real news during